Hi there, pop pickers. It's me again, and Sunday at four means six to the pops. Welcome to the Curiously Specific Pop Club. Brought to you by Palmer's Soho Blend. The coffee of the swinging 60s. Enjoy coffee. Enjoy coffee. Are we recording? Are we on, darling? What, are you, what coffee are you having, sweetheart? I am having a cappuccino. I've got a cafe latte with an extra shot of espresso. Oh, hello. It's been a long week. It's very metrosexual. It is. It's very Len Dayton. Len Dayton? Len Dayton. Why, why did I bring him up? Ah, well. Where are we, Tim? Nice to see you again, nice by the way. Nice to see you. It's been a long time. We're back. Yes. We're back with a, with a fluffy microphone in, with a, in, a, in, in a, a, a public very, place. In a very nice delicatessen. Lena Stores. Lena Stores on Brewer Street. This has been here since the 1950s, I believe. The 1950s? And why is that significant, Tim? Well, the book that we're going to discuss today... That down, we go... down, 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 What we're doing here, listener, listener. just to remind you, because you've this probably is, forgotten this, about This is the Curiously Specific Book Club podcast, we should say. It's just not you and me talking. Yeah, and so you are? Uh, I'm Lloyd Shepherd, at Lloyd Shep. Yeah. And you are Knock Carruthers. No, no, that's the other podcast. <laughs> I have many identities, <laughs> but my real name is Tim Wright. Tim Wright. And I can be found mainly as at Moon Golfer. And we do a podcast called Curious Specific Book Club, which we haven't done for about six months, because I only went and got a job, yeah, didn't you I? Fool. I know. Yeah. I had a job. Yeah. <laughs> But we, I realised that mistake. As I always say at my new job, we are where we are. <laughs> <laughs> I think sort of between jobs is a good place to be in Soho, which in is Soho, where we are. We're on Brewer Street in the People's Republic of Soho, yeah. and we're here to discuss Len Dayton's first published novel. Yes. Are you going to keep doing that? I'll do that all day. <laughs> the Ipcrest File. The Ipcrest File. Okay. Well, I've got in front of me, Len Dayton brought a book out in 1967 called The London Dossier. So this came out five years after The Ipcrest File. The publication of The Ipcrest File is 62. 62. This is 1967. I've got a first edition, seven and six. Nice. It's got a cut-out keyhole in the cover with a... A lady's uh, eye. A lady's eye. A very 60s lady's eye. And then you open the cover and it is... Twiggy! It's Twiggy. (laughs) Peeking at you through a keyhole. Could could it be more 60s? Why would she be doing that? Uh, this book is this book's great because it's it's basically a travel guide to London. So okay. It's aimed at tourists coming to London. Mm-hmm. Um, he writes the. Introdu- shut this door. Okay. He yeah. wrote the introduction, but he also and he and he, invite, he invited some friends to write on different sections. In between each section, uh, Len writes a little kind of commentary on what's just gone before, and he writes a thing on Soho. Come on, then. Um, and it's all, going. it's all written in quite an arch, kind of hip style. Really? And it's quite, you surprised me. It's really interesting because it's <laughs> obvious that all the... This is five years after the Ipcrest file. And everyone, everything you read about the Ipcrest file when it came out, everyone says it was so refreshing and hip and groovy and we couldn't, we couldn't get over how hip and groovy it was. And everyone has just absorbed that style. So everyone's trying to write like Len Dayton. Right. Series. Soho is London's most foreign quarter. Here is the greatest concentration of foreign food shops, restaurants and theatres. Here too are the striptease shows, as well as the confidence tricksters and the petty criminals. Watch out for the signs. They're naked and they dance, says one. And another in a fish shop, we have nets, but we never catch our customers. A fruit barrow boy has written, do not squeeze me until I'm yours. (laughs) Not only in English, but in German, French and Italian. 
Another large sign says, take cover downstairs, but proves to be a shop selling gramophone records. Eat the continental style cream cakes and watch the chef cracking eggs. Buy some pate and ogle the photos of backsides. Smell the fresh bread and sip the fresh coffee. Argue with the Barrow Boys and buy a flower for your buttonhole. Read Private Eye and take a drink in the York Minster. Whistle at the girls and listen to the street musicians, for this is Soho, where anything goes, and just make sure it's not your wallet. That is great. It's good, isn't it? That is a proper flavour of the place, yeah, isn't it? it is. It's a good and in this book, is it, Chris File, is, is a lot of it takes place in and around Soho, we feel, and we're going to get curiously specific about the location and the date. And the I date of the book. We're going to have a good, good, well, I think we're going to have a good old chat about the date of the date, yeah. because there's, there's a number of clues. It, it's never explicit what year it's set in. Can I just say something about 1962, which I just think is an extraordinary year? Yeah. If I list you some things for that year, yeah. so I tell you what happened. So basically, that year, Z cars started. What's the theme tune to Z cars? Are you going to hear all the tunes? Can you do Steptoe and Son? And here's an easy one. University Challenge started that year. I wouldn't describe myself as a member of the University Challenge fandom. And also that was the week that was. Ah. So if you think about that, that's a televisually that's quite a, a moment, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. For the next ten years, that sort of sets a tone yeah, for yeah. television. Then you've got. I was interested in this, the Sunday Times Colour Supplement, the first colour magazine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So suddenly life was in colour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The first legal casino opened in Brighton. And then the Beatles, obviously, Love Me Do, their first single. 17th October. Rolling Stones played their first gig at the Marquee down the road. It is. The Ford Cortina is launched. It's getting quite swinging now. You get the vibe? It is, it is. You get the vibe? And then for all those older people, the first hit replacement. Technologically swinging. I quite like the word hip in that. Well, that's quite well. nice. Means you can do a bit more dancing. How about some? How about some hip replacement, baby? Maybe. <laughs> the French and the British agree to build Concord. Oh, very good. And obviously the movies. The significant one is Doctor No. Bond comes into Bond existence plays. as a film character. Yeah. yeah, such a big deal. And Lawrence Arabia at that year as well. Ooh. And probably the most important thing culturally. I okay. would say that okay. happened in 1962. Okay. The cheese and onion crisp was introduced to Britain. <laughs> <laughs> it's been downhill ever since. Golden ones and made some crisps. Golden ones are crisps. They found a cheese and onion taste. The golden ones are crisps. With a crunch crunch here and a crunch crunch there. Here crunch there, crunch everywhere, crunch crunch. Golden ones and made some crisps. Golden ones are crisps. Cheese and onion. The We're on Gerrard Street. Gerrard Street. In the, Wardour Street End. In the heart of London's Chinatown. We've just walked under the under the, the Red Lanterns. Red Lanterns. And we're in search of Ledera's Coffee House. Ledera, so, so at the start of the book, he is sitting in Ledera's Coffee House with a character called Jay. Yes. And he's trying to work out how he's going to offer him £18,000 to buy back this purloined scientist yes. called Raven. That's the spy bit. Yeah. Obviously, I was more interested in the food bit. Yeah, of course you were. Of course bit. you were. Letters is mentioned half a dozen times in this There book. are 64 references to <laughs> coffee in this yes. book. Yes. It's And then another four references to Nescafe. He's obsessed, He's obsessed with, with coffee. coffee. Yeah, yeah. I walked down Charlotte Street towards Soho, 
It was that sort of January morning that had enough sunshine to point up the dirt without raising the temperature, which is basically... Actually, which is actually... All right. I was probably like seeking excuses to delay. I bought two packets of Goulois, sank a quick grapper with Mario and Franco at the Terrazza. We'll talk we- about the Terrazza. Bought a Statesman. Yeah. Some Normandy butter and garlic sausage. <laughs> that is not a spy, mate. Yeah, That's yeah. an advertising yeah, yeah, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In spite of my dawdling, I was still in Lederer's Coffee House by 12.55. Leds is one of those continental-style coffee houses where coffee comes in a glass. The customers, who mostly think of themselves as clientele, are those smooth, rugged characters with sunlamp complexions, half a dozen 10-inch by 8-inch glossies, an agent and more time than money on their hands. Very good. So where would that be? Now, you said letterers couldn't find it. I couldn't find the actual letterers. Okay, but you found a load of coffee stores. A load of coffee stores. So There's some great mentions of coffee stores in the London dossier. He talks a lot about the Lions Coffee Houses, actually, in the London right, dossier. Right, so this book published 62. The coffee shop explosion is late 50s. Yep. Cafe bars. It's yep. absolutely massive. Yep. I'm going to take you on a little tour of these as we go Excellent. along. All right. I found a documentary called Coffee Bar, The Look at Life, 1959. It's on YouTube. Okay. And it, and it goes round the coffee bars. All right. But there was a photograph of the one here called the Le Grain, or Le Grand. And it was, um, each of the coffee bars had a different clientele. And this one is for writers, uh, particularly screenwriters, movie people, actors and actresses. Yeah. As described. Yeah, we should probably say that at the time he's writing the book, he's working in advertising. Yes. As an illustrator. Basically. And then an art director. A lot of the locations of this book are where ad people uh, hang yeah, out, exactly. basically, yeah, yeah. in Soho. But anyway, I all then found a photograph of the Le Grain, or Le Grain, and it's a view looks west along Gerrard Street towards Lower Wardour Street, exactly where we are. At the far end, you can see a neon sign in the window of the old Regent Shoe Shop, who also had another shop next door. The first floor of this premise turned into the Whiskey-A-Go-Go, and much later, the Wag Club. Oh, the Wag, of course the Wag. The Wag Club. Of course you go to the Wag Club. I used to go to the Wag Club. Yeah. now it's coming back to you. Now. Oh, you well, I can okay. remember having Frank's on the back steps. It's up there. Yeah. Yes. We'll talk about that. Oh, mate, I feel really old now. <laughs> so, on the facing corner of Gerald Street is the amusement arcade. There yeah. it is. And then the picture of this 1960s. So, it's basically two doors down. It's here. The Kowloon restaurant. Yeah, that was the Lagrange. 21 Gerard Mansions. Yeah, that was, the, that was it. This, just this side. Where they sold coffee and glasses. And in the picture, oh. in, on the, in the uh, documentary, you see inside. And it's got the tables, glass, gla- coffee and glasses, two actresses waiting for an audition. Fantastic. It's, it's, I love it. It's the scene. I love it. So Very you're good. exactly in the right place, maybe. What's it called again? Le Grand or Le Grain. Le Grain. But that's only one of many coffee shops. Now, the reason I think <coughs> this is a good location, because he says when they finish with Jay in the conversation, they walk out onto Wardour Street. They do, just there, yeah. I do want to say a little bit, because we're at the end of Wardour Street, about the Flamingo Club. It was opened in 1957. Uh, by a guy called Jeff Kruger, who's a music promoter. And it was mainly a sort of jazz club. Billy Holiday, Ella Fitzgerald, wow. Sarah Vaughan. Wow. All played there. 59, it was relaunched as the Flamingo Club. Before that, it had been called the Mapleton, sorry. Yeah. So 59. And then in 62, it became infamous for a fight over a girl called Christine Keeler. No. Yeah. Really? It was about to explode into political history, blah, blah, blah. The Flamingo Club was on the ground floor. Okay. And then the Whiskey A Go Go opened in 1958. Hence Wag. Do you know who gave a press I've conference? Never, I've never made that connection before. Thank you very much. 
Were you about to say that? Yeah, I was. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I, just, I, I just suddenly had a kind of flash of inspiration. Right. Sorry, Tim. Say, say this is 1958-59. In the in book? Mar- in, yeah. It's not. Okay. In March 58, though, <laughs> if you're hanging around here then, yeah, yeah. Buddy Holly is giving a press conference in that building about his 25-date tour. This one? Yeah. Yeah. So Buddy Holly might have had a coffee in here for all you know. He might have done. Right. Amazing. Good. So that's why, that, going back to what we were just talking about in 1962, the sense you get from about 57 onwards is it's all leading up to that explosion in 62. Yeah, he's not mentioning any of this in the book, though, of all this kicking off around here. Because even And then at number 17 Wardour Street, really down the next door, pretty much, a few doors down from the Flamingo, there was another club opened in 1956 called the El Condor Club, which was opened by... <laughs> Uh, Raymond Nash, one of the Lebanese gangster family, never heard of that. Okay. Right? The El Condor was oh, in the late fifties. Princess Margaret went there. Oh. Was hanging out there, and then it was relaunched in the early sixties as the La Discotheque <laughs> or La Discotheque. La Discotheque. The building was owned by Rackman. Oh my word! It's right. all it's all there. Yeah. And on the opening night, Mandy Rice Davis turned up, um, got into an altercation with the Cray brothers throwing a drink in their face what here yeah I mean if you've written if you wrote a TV film and you set it in there you go, you got, you got, the only shot is Len Dayton sipping a coffee in the cafe looking <laughs> out and, the, and then the Cray twins walk up the road bump into Mandy Rice Davis Buddy Holly's just got his yeah, guitar out. she throws a drink in their <laughs> face it's like a spoof Buddy Holly walks out of there <laughs> it's like a spoof Princess Margaret rolls up it's like some crazy um Austin Powers kind of yeah. uh, moment. But they were all literally here. Fantastic. At the Brilliant. same time. Brilliant. Really, really great. So, Dayton hasn't been shortlisted for the Booker. I haven't yet read the novels that were, but they need to be pretty damn good to equal the writing here. Do you ever feel resentful that you're not considered to be literature and you don't oh. win things like the Booker Prize? <laughs> no, no, no. In fact, I would um, like my publisher to put across the front of the book that the publisher and author guarantee that this book has no literary merit whatsoever. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I've got no um, ambition in in that direction. I think it's quite complicated enough as far as I'm concerned to write mainstream popular fiction without adding uh, a dimension of uh, art. Right, we're standing on Frith Street now. Uh, number 29, opposite number 29 Frith Street, near the juncture with Shaftesbury Avenue. Yeah. It's now a what's it Taiwan, Taiwan number, number one, one. Zingfu Tang global fashion brand. I've just been in. Yeah, it seems to be like Taiwanese smoothies. Right, rather oddly. I okay. don't know why it's a global fashion brand. Well, let me tell you, people are the, queuing for them though. What you're what you're looking at there, yeah, is the star of the coffee revolution in the UK. <laughs> This, I, I'm, I'm enjoying your sense of drama. This is where it starts. At the Zinfu Tang. And the one person who would really appreciate what I'm talking about here is Dayton with his coffee obsession. Okay, alright. So this is the original coffee bar. No. Really? Called Mocha. What's interesting about this is that basically what happened was this guy who was an itinerant dental equipment salesman from Italy called Pino Risavato. Oh, come on. Pino Risavato. <laughs> I told you you're going to like this story. Travelling up and down the country hawking his wares, he became mortified by the abysmal quality of England's coffee. (laughs) (laughs) He was related to the director of the Gaggia company that Ah, made... Ah, okay. uh, And he became the sales agent. 
when no one took the bait, he went it alone, renovated the ruined laundrette, and opened the first espresso bar in London. No. There? There. Why is there not a blue plaque or something? It was hugely popular, serving over a thousand glasses of espresso a day. Glasses. Glasses. Glasses, you see. Where did the glass thing come from? If you get an espresso in Italy, it doesn't come in a glass. It comes Mm. in a cup. And he also started to sell the first ever cappuccino (sighs) in London. Yeah. But then by 1960, there were over 500 gadget machines that he'd sold. Do you know who opened the Mocha Bar in 1953? Uh, Officially opened it. Cliff Richard. <laughs> Gina Lonna Bridge. No, no way. Yeah. There? Yeah. That's extraordinary. <laughs> See, I thought you would like Gina Lonna Bridge. Yeah. And then the other really great story about this is it closed in 1972 under strange circumstances. Okay. <laughs> okay. And do you know what people think? Who managed to close it down? Nescafe. William Burroughs. William Burroughs? <laughs> okay. There's quite a long list of names I wasn't expecting there, and that would definitely be on it. Beat legend William Burroughs was not impressed by the mocker and believed it to be responsible for an outrageous and unprovoked discourtesy and poisonous cheesecake. Where are you getting this from? He decided to mount a sound and vision attack, as he had previously successfully done against the Church of Scientology at 37 Fitzroy Street. He maintained that as soon as you start recording situations and playing them back on the street, you create a new reality. That's what we're doing right now. And that constant exposure to such attacks would lead to accidents, fires and removals. He stood outside the mocha every day taking photographs and making recordings returning the next day to play the previous day's recordings and then on october the 30th 1972 the mocha bar closed suddenly william burroughs shut it down with a psychic attack that's extraordinary (laughs) i'm genuinely speechless i was like a psychic attack on a coffee bar yeah we're doing it now Enjoy the Curiously Specific Book Club. So you want to talk about dates? I want to talk about dates. First of all, let's talk a little bit about the writing of the book. He does say that he wrote the first half of the book in 1957. Okay. And then he, when he was back in London, at some point in after that, he met an agent. He met an agent, Jonathan Clough. At, at a, a, at a party, party in Swiss Cottage. Swiss Cottage. And he said, oh, and he's talking to him. So what do you do? He goes, oh, I'm a literary agent. He goes, oh, I've written a book. And I'm like, oh, okay. And I'm like, a literary agent, never heard that before. And he showed it to the, the agent. And the agent said, oh, yeah, this is quite good. Finished the book or something. So he finished the book. So we don't know when that happened. The next date that we do know is the book came out in 1962. Yes. Okay. So there's a five-year gap between when he starts writing the book and when the book actually comes out. Good. So that's just to frame it. Yeah. There are a couple of clues as to what the year might be. Couple? Uh, in the, in the, well, there's one really big clue right. that I, I used when I was thinking about this to frame all the other clues. Okay. Come on. And the big clue is Fairy Aviation. Oh, the brass band. The brass band. Very okay. good. Fairy Aviation Brass Band. Yes. Uh, he talks about or this taking place in the year that Fairy Aviation won the national trophy. They're play, playing brass band music in the building which where, makes, in Charlotte Street where he works. Where he works. Where, yeah. the, where the spy office is. And the Fairy Aviation Brass Band won the national... The British Open. The British Open in 1956 and 1961. I initially set the dating of this as 1957. 
Then there's a couple of things that work against that. Yes. One to do with planes and one to do with roads. Come on then. So there's a reference to the Boeing 707. I missed that. Okay. First Boeing 707 wasn't released until 1958. Very good. But the clincher, Tim, for me, yeah, the absolute clincher is the Maidstone Bypass. I knew you were going to say that! <laughs> I knew you were going to say that! <laughs> and this is where we have a lovely overlap with previous editions of the Curious. Yes, Pacific listener, Book Club. you must go and listen to the Moonraker portrait. Where there is no Maidstone Bypass. Correct. Because the Maidstone Bypass opened in 1960. Yes! <laughs> because that's when Dolby, he dies in a car he crash. At the end, at the end he's of the... He's bumped off. He's bumped off at the end of the book. He dies in a car crash on the Maidstone Bypass. So I must be in 1960. 1961, is I always set the book. Because Ferry Aviation won the Colliery Brass Band in 1961. So when he's actually talking, is actually in 1962, which is the year the book came out. Really? <laughs> so here are some other references in the book. There's a reference to record temperatures in Cologne and Athens. <laughs> Weather. You always miss the weather. I do roads, you do weather. Okay. <laughs> the only time there was record temperatures in Cologne and Athens, yeah. a hot summer, is 1959. Okay, so it's, it's a blazing I... summer of 1959. Yeah. But it's not the year the brass band won the national championship. Well, I think the brass band thing, he's got that wrong. <laughs> you see, I think what's happened... Yeah, I agree with you. I, I think, think it's more likely to have got the I date think, of the no, extreme temperatures I wrong. think what's happened here is he wrote the half the book in 57, or whatever, yeah, yeah. right? Then he's he's hustled it to a literary agent, and they say, "Yeah, I like the look of this. Get it." It's written the second half. In he's written the one in '61, and then he's and he's started putting in '61 references to a book that's not about '61. So being curiously unspecific. He's all over the place. He mentions Eichmann. He does mention. He Eichmann. mentions Eichmann. That's 1960. Yeah. April 1960. Yeah. So it's still 1961 then. No. The thing is, no, 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 no. What you're what confusing here is the fact that it starts, the book starts in January 1959 and it finishes in the middle of 1960. And the 1960 reference is right at the end of the book is Eichmann and the Mainstream Bypass, 1960. Yes. There's no reference to 1961 anywhere. They're all 1958, 59... 60. I would say the uh, it says uh, I choose. Where is your 61 I, reference? Fair, fairy Airport Band, who won the won it in 1961. Well, do you know what I think happened there? Do you know what I think happened well, there? Well, I, I think your hypothesis is correct. There's actually two books. He wrote on. this in 1957, and he's talking about the and his reference about the 56, 56 wing. Yeah, yeah, and he finished it in 1961. So it's a mistake. In an interesting way, we are both right. You're basing it all on the brass band data, and, and on the the road opening the previous year. Yeah, but that's it. Everything else could oh, be, is, is anywhere between fifty-seven solid, and fifty-eight. It's, it's more solid than any of the vaporous stuff you've you've tried on me. Weather, <laughs> the heat wave, the heat wave. Also, there's always a bloody heat wave in Rome and no, Athens, isn't there? Not like fifty-nine. Not okay. like fifty-nine. Is it, was it really big? Really historic. Paul that's McCartney's great. written a song about it. Has he? Yes. Summer of fifty-nine. Yeah. Isn't that Brian Adams? In the summer of 59, dandelions shine up to the pavement. Petal bushes in the bushes, waspy pinches, 16 inches round the waist. And it's all in the name of good taste. 
In London, with a beautiful hungry girl, one must show her to Mario at the Terrapta. One must show her to Mario. We sat in the ground floor, front, under the plastic grapes, and Mario brought us Campari sodas and told Jean how much he hated me. Already, Campari sodas in 1951. (laughs) Very glamorous. To do this, he had to practically gnaw her ear off. We ordered the Zuppa de Lentitier. I had that last week. And Jean told how this lentil soup reminded her of visits with her father to Sicily many years ago. They had friends there, and each year would coincide their visits with the Feast of San Giuseppe on the 19th of March. This is the first time she's met, he's met Jean, right? They go for a coffee, then they go out for a boozy lunch. Well, she's been appointed as his secretary, yeah, yeah, yeah. and the first thing he does is he takes her out, out to Trats. Trats. <laughs> Mario, deciding that I was on the brink of a great and important seduction, brought us a bottle of cold, sparkling Aston <laughs> on the house. <laughs> Has that ever happened to you? Has that ever happened? I'll have a baby sham. That the baby comes over and gives you a bottle on the house. But a bottle of Asti, though. He Isn't filled... that, that Asti Spumenti? Isn't that like... Well, that would have been glamorous then. He filled and refilled Jean's glass, then turned with the bottle still in his hand. He pointed the neck at me. It's good. This is amazing, isn't it? Well, this is a lunchtime drink as but well. But it's also important to point out that Mario is a real person. Oh. Right? Is he the only real person in the book? Okay, so we are stood at the end of... The junction of Romney Street in Soho with Dean Street. Yep. Shall I read a little bit from London Dossier? Not long ago, yeah. I was honoured to be present when one London restaurant proprietor, Tom Benson of Parks Restaurant, cooked a meal for Mario of the Trattoria Terrazzo. I have a photo of it here, uh, which I found from Getty Images. And, it, yeah. and, um, and it's, it's right now the called the, the Relais de Venise. Le Relais de Venise. But it was Mario and Franco's Terrazzo. But it was known to the advertising people of the day as Trats. Trats. Long before the Ivy and Le Caprice began eating away Adlander's expense accounts, the trendiest dining place for free-spending agency types was known simply as the Trat. Opened in 1959. Okay. So again, it's I think that just feeds into my... He knows Mario. Mario knows him. So he's had a year to go. He's had a year. So there we are. That just so plays into my It's hands. interesting that it was opened in 59, so it can't be, can't be 58. 57. Can't be 57, can't be 58. 58. It's 59, right? Quickly became the restaurant of choice for newly enriched and free-spending ad folk. It says here, Tim Mellors, Grey Group's worldwide chief creative officer, recalls, it was expensive and flashy. It was perfect for advertising people. But, that's, but they say the prices are all right in here. The trap may have had a very different style to the ivy, but it was very much the ivy of its day, said Andrew Cracknell, the former Bates UK creative to achieve. <laughs> God, here it we go. It just full of them. The last thing to say about this Vermellas was, actually, the food wasn't sensational, but the place was light and bright, and media people were always warmly welcomed. When you were there, you really felt like somebody. OK, I'm just looking at reading over your shoulder. Yeah. The Beatles, yeah. David Bailey, Sir Michael Caine... Bridget Bardot and even Princess Margaret were among the Trats' first diners. Yeah. The Beatles didn't go there in 1959. <laughs> and nor did Michael Caine. 61, mate. You're just playing into my hands. You're listening to the popular sounds of the Curiously Specific Book Club podcast. Brought to you by Palmer's Soho Blend. The coffee of the swinging 60s. Go to our website today and type in the voucher code CURIOUSLY SPECIFIC. 
to receive a 10% discount on your first purchase of Palmer's Soho Blend. Do it today. Enjoy coffee. We are in a, um, a very authentic London trattoria. You're having spag bowl. I'm having spag bowl. You're having Milanese. Yeah. You've got half a litre of white, I've got half a litre of red. Ah. And the reason we're here because of Charlotte Street. Just off Charlotte Street. So I'll, re- I'll read the book. Dalby's Place is in one of those sleazy long streets in the district that would be Soho. If Soho had the strength to cross Oxford Street. There is a new likely looking office conversion wherein the unwinking blue neon glows even at summer midday. But this isn't Dalby's Place. Dalby's department is next door. It is dirtier than average, with a genteel profusion of well-worn brasswork telling of the existence of the ex-officers employment bureau, established 1917, etc, etc. Each morning at 9.30 I rang, and avoiding the larger cracks in the lino, began the ascent. I'll always associate Charlotte Street with the music of the colliery brass bands that I remember from my childhood. The duty drivers and cipher clerks had a little fraternity that sat around in the dispatch office on the second floor. They had a very loud gramophone and they were all brass band fanatics. That's a pretty esoteric feeling in London. It's very weird that sort of I think so, he's just trying to build up the idea that his main protagonist is a northerner. I know, it's working quite And then he drops it in the second novel. And no. he, as soon as Michael Caine is cast, it's over. There's a very um, likely looking 50s style building on the corner of Good Street and Charlotte Street. Which is now an Italian restaurant. And then next door is a, a thing a with loads of door numbers. Yeah. You know, place that is, is very likely. We, take, we took some pictures there. So, so we, we think we found it, haven't we? The opposite is a Wook. Wook P. Wook P. Wook brackets P. The secret department the secret to which department. he belongs. Yeah, which is entirely made up, obviously. So Charlotte Street has always been media central in some ways. And very advertising, yeah. which is where he works. You know what company, what, what yes, firm he worked for? He worked for Robert Sharp on Charlotte Street in 1960. Do we know what address that was? I couldn't find an address for it. Okay. There are a number of ad agencies that were on Charlotte Street during the 1950s. It was the centre of yeah. advertising. And in fact, the, and the biggest one that actually is just not quite on Charlotte Street, but just off it, was McCann Erickson. It right. was there. So it has been a hub for ad agency, and as I say, it plays into my theory that this is not a spy novel. This is a novel about uh, ad agency people pretending to be spied. The one, the one thing that is quite timely in the book, though, is brainwashing. Come on, tell me about brainwashing. Do you want me to tell you about brainwashing? Yeah, please, too. In the book, the unnamed hero is taken to, by the quote-unquote Hungarians and subjected to... I think it's something like 40 days of psychological torture in which they're trying to break break him. It's worth saying that brainwashing is very much in the air. Why? Uh, there's, there's, well, the, the term brainwashing itself is first used by a man called Edward Hunter in 1950 to describe how the Chinese government appeared to make people cooperate with them. A big part of this is the Korean War. Really? So, you know, there are Americans are actually, oh. American soldiers are actually fighting Chinese soldiers, and some of them are being taken by the Chinese. So, 
the Manchurian Candidate feed, feeds into this, and that film came out in 1962. Did it? But the book came out somewhat earlier. Oh, now, wow. So okay. Edward Hunter actually test, and, and the reason this becomes really big mm. is that he testifies to the House of Un-American Activities. Yeah. In 1958, March the 13th, 1958. Oh, that's interesting. And he testifies and says, the communist inquisitors in the prisoner of war camps in Korea depended first of all on a screening process to provide them with the men most likely to succumb to brainwashing. They picked the ones they figured would be most useful to them from among these. Cunning was all that was needed, along with a complete disregard for ethics. They have based their technique primarily on the complete abandonment of morality. The point being that they believed, McCarthy believed, and this guy believed, yeah. that the and, and the Manchurian candidate is all about, the Chinese were sending Americans back to America brainwashed. So the whole theme of the Ipcris file is these scientists are being taken away somewhere and basically being reprogrammed. Yeah to think differently about stuff. Yeah, yeah. So that's the American context. And then the British context is, is a bit different, but also very similar. So Dayton says that he read a book by a chap called William Sargent, S-A-R-G-A-N-T. He said he read it three times while he was reading, reading Oh, the was book. he doing a podcast? He was doing a podcast. He had to read it three times. Now, this William Sargent guy... You could learn from that. ...is absolutely... Fa- I'd never heard of him before. So, so, so he was a British psychiatrist, and he... He came up with a theory based on Pavlov. Yes, okay. Pavlov's dogs. He believed that the the only way you could stop people being traumatized would be to basically create a state of shock in them such that you could reprogram them. Now, the, and the word he used was a word called abreaction, and that word is used in the Ipcrest file. Is it? Yep. So the idea being that you can shock somebody so profoundly that their brain is basically wiped and then you can reprogram them. When was he writing this? He wrote a book which is an extraordinary thing called Battle for the Mind yep. and it came out in 1957. So he read that, that book was published in 1957. So interestingly going back to the hypotheses on dates, yeah. all the stuff about brainwashing is in the second half of the book. Yes. Right. Okay. So if we say he wrote the first half, okay in 1957 and then this book comes out and that go, might and explain why the plot's all over the place is you start with one story and you end with another exactly it could easily explain that I'm going to add one little corollary this is making me realise something in terms of spies and British spies of this era yeah double agents yeah the most famous one is George Blake yeah yeah now, George Blake was actually caught and put on trial in 1961. And the one thing I hadn't realised as you were talking is that they claimed that he'd become a, an avowed communist because he'd been captured in the Korean War yeah, 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 yeah. and brainwashed. Yeah. Dayton must have read about that as well. Of course he did. He read everything. Yeah. So George Blake would have been on his mind, I think, when he was doing his second... So I wonder this book. if we have this. You no, know George Blake's still alive. He's not. He's still alive, and and not very long. Where in Moscow? He's ninety something. He recently got some special citizen's medal from Putin. Wow! I thought he'd be dead ages ago. He's still around. Hello, George Blake. So George Were you brainwashed in Korea?
strange-looking installations at Runit Island and Iwitok Atoll are ready for the testing of a new U.S. atom bomb, equal to perhaps 10,000 tons of TNT. First, watch the explosion from sea level. We're on a bus. Five, four, three, two, one. So you want me to say I'm on the one, don't you? Yeah, because then we'd be going to Elephant Castle. We're on a bus in South London. That's where all Harry Palmer lives. And Len Dayton lives. Yeah. I lived. Elephant Castle. Yeah, yeah. Which I've the got, book is very clear about. Well, all I will say is we are on a bus in South London. All right, well, it sounds like the one. It sounds like a one. Does it? Like, do you think people would know if they were like bus aficionados? They, I think some people would know go, from the sound which bus you were on. That's definitely not a one. <laughs> yeah. Let's say we're on a one. Okay. Okay. Now, we're, we're nearly finished and going we're home. Nearly done, we're nearly we are going to South London. We are, we are in South London. Okay. Yeah. But the point is... <laughs> <laughs> shut up. You just ruined it for me. Real life has intruded. <laughs> now, the thing is, yeah. we've done all this wandering around London. Yeah. And we haven't talked about so the one thing this book is essentially about. Yeah. The Cold War. It's about, cold, it's about it's the Cold War. It's a spy novel. It's a spy and we novel. haven't really talked about spies it's a spy at all. novel. And about, what would you say about 25% of this book takes place in the... the Tokwe pers- Atoll. Yeah, which is a fictional place. Uh, interestingly, they were supposed to do it in the film, because the film has nothing about the Tokwe Atoll at all. But was and they ran out of money. Too expensive. So there is no Tokwe Atoll, <laughs> let me tell you. <laughs> we're on the Shush. <laughs> I knew you were going to do this. <laughs> well, I hadn't realised quite how... You're like, rubbish at faking anything. I am, I can't lie. The Tokwe Atoll doesn't exist, okay. And the nuclear testing. So basically, they invited to go out and yes. witness a nuclear test. For reasons that and never then he really gets, adequately and then explained. He get, and then he gets framed for a murder and a spying mission, doesn't he? He gets framed for sending signals to the Russians. Dating is interesting. Okay. Because nuclear testing. It started on the Bikini Atoll. Yes. In 1946. Then it went to the Enewetak Atoll. Emma Wittak, which has basically been bombed to buggery, killing all life. Oh, Jesus. Honestly, it basically was something like ten times more powerful than they predicted the explosion. And it took out radio signals so that flights in Hawaii and Australia, planes lost contact with their airports. My God. (laughs) And it irradiated everything. My God. They displaced all the local population there and then sent them to an island with no fresh water where they starved and then they let them come back and be irradiated. Honestly, the behaviour of the American government over the way that they treated these atolls and the people on it is absolutely shocking. And what year was that? (laughs) That was in 1954. So I guess the question is, how much did people in 1957 or whenever he was writing this book know about they that. did know about it and the point is that the, there was a massive public opinion against doing any more of this stuff okay it led to the fact that Eisenhower was more and more keen on limiting the amount of testing and maybe doing it underground in Nevada and not doing it uh, okay right. in the skies over the Pacific no. and ruining other people's lives because it was electoral poison but yeah. also, Khrushchev was in the same boat and running out of money. So actually, in 1958, in August 1958, they announced, Khrushchev and Eisenhower, that they were going to have a moratorium. They announced in July 58. But what did the US scientists do? They said, the moratorium is going to be in October. Okay, between July and October, let's, blow up some shit. let's do loads <laughs> of fucking <laughs> stuff. 
And they went crazy. Oh my God. <laughs> just loads of it. Honestly. Well, what year was it? 1958? Yeah, they did 35 tests. But that's interesting, right? So if he wrote the first half of the book in 1957, yeah. and he's writing the second half of the book in 19-whatever. Yeah, where there's so no further... Yeah, after it might have been after that. Yeah. So he's like, okay, well, if I'm going to set this book in whenever then there's a whole bunch of things that I could add in. So, so actually, the, the likelihood of there being something like the Tokwai Atoll is quite high, right? There were no further tests after 1958 in the Pacific. Right. They all happened in America. No, what I mean is they would have been, they would have been heard about it. They would have been in the news when he was, if he was writing the second half of the book. Oh, yeah. In 1959, Yeah, exactly. There were two further high-altitude tests just before the moratorium at the Johnston Atoll in the South Pacific. The Johnston Atoll? Yeah, about 1,300 kilometres southwest. And that one, not only did they blow up the nuclear weapons and irradiate it, it was also a nuclear and biological weapons testing site. Jesus. A missile base. And then uh, was used for storing Agent Orange. <gasps> so it was so poisoned that they couldn't really use it for anything. Although they did actually, for a while, Continental Airlines used to touch down there as a refuelling post between Honolulu and Japan in the 1960s. Well, after the bomb? But no passengers were allowed to leave the aircraft. Are you kidding? And the aircraft was surrounded by armed forces. Are you kidding me? While it refuelled. That is extraordinary. Yeah. And then, even more extraordinary, I would say, that in 2005, the US government put the atoll up for auction to see if anyone would like to buy it (laughs) as a residence or vacation getaway. Did anyone buy it? With potential usage for ecotourism, despite <laughs> the fact that it's completely poisoned, right? Oh my god. Nobody bought it. What year was that? 2005. Is it still for sale? No. 2010, a Fish and Wildlife Survey said, oh no, it got to it. Oh, this is even better. It got taken over by crazy ants. Crazy ants? Yeah. Crazy ants, particularly destructive to not. How did they get there? In the middle of the Pacific, how did crazy ants get How there? did crazy ants get there? Right. On a Continental Airlines flight, presumably. They're a swarm of anapolepsis ants. Crazy ants. And they need to be eradicated. So the crazy ant strike team was sent by the US Fish and Wildlife Service, who achieved a 99% reduction in ant numbers by 2013. What, by blowing a hydrogen bomb up over the top <laughs> of it? Probably with Agent Orange, actually, <laughs> I suspect. <laughs> They continue to work towards full eradication of the species from the atoll. Oh my god. It sounds like a hellhole. They've it just does ruined like a the whole hole. place. Talking of hellholes, right. we're coming into Tulse Hill now. Yeah, we need to get off. For me, my attitude when I walk back around here is not so much an attitude of coming back out of nostalgia or even for any other reason. It's coming back, I think, to re-experience the surprise that I ever went away. Down, 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 down. So we've made it. Down, start. down. <laughs> John Barry, say moi. You're quite annoying. I am quite annoying. We've made it to South London. Actually, there's only one thing I've just occurred to me about this whole point is that this is a man who lives in South London who then has to take a bus across the Thames to deal with the world of central London. I know. And I was thinking, oh, yes, well, we know we live in South London. We do that all the time. It's only when we're coming back, I was thinking, do you know what? I do have that feeling sometimes that when I cross the river and I go, oh, 
Thank God for that. I'm in I know. Sa- I'm in I South know. London. I have that too, and it's like I'm only I'm only a South Londoner by accident, but. It is a completely different vibe on the side of the river. Yeah. It's a funny thing to think about... Len Dayton. Len Dayton thinking that. And also about that being part of the book. That it's, I've got my flat in Elephant Castle. Yeah. And then I get on the bus and then I go and deal with all these public school guys in Westminster. But again, we've talked, Soho. we have talked a little bit about this being quite a schizophrenic book. He wrote half of it in 1957. Yep. As far as I know, in 1957, he was living in North London. He was living near Charing Cross Road. He claims in the preface to the second book that he wrote the book in France while doing freelance work. Right. And then the freelance word dried up because right. he wasn't in London meeting art directors okay, and commissioners. Right. And so he came to London to get that work and then became an art director at the ad agency. And that, So he was in Elephant and Castle at that uh, okay. point. So he wrote the first book. Because he's, he's a North London lad, right? He grew up, he, he was born in yeah. Marlebone. Yeah. So I'm saying to you, the real, one of the reasons why he's always talking about buying garlic sausage and, and eating beef bourguignon yeah. is that he's, he's in France. Yeah, that's true. And then he's wandering around Soho pretending to go into French delis when someone should have said to him, they're Italian delis. There are only French delis in Soho. They're Italian Len, delis. They're Italian delis. Is he, he's still alive, right? Len's in Guernsey now. Okay. So, n- Len. Len. We would like to say we are both huge admirers of you, you and your books. Yeah. Specifically this book, less so maybe Horse Underwater. Underwater. This book is quite nuts. I think the whole book is quite nuts. There's all kinds of bizarre things. I told you, I found it very hard to follow. The first time. Yeah. And even by the third time, I still thought this book is quite nuts. But I really liked the way it was written. I loved the voice of it. And And now I've walked around Soho. Do you know what? I would have loved to yeah. have been in Soho yeah, yeah, yeah. between 1958 and 1962 yeah. with all these characters and all with these garlic clubs. sausage in your pocket. I would have thrived and a, and there. A cup, I feel I would have done. I feel I would have done rather well there. I might have ended up scripting a Bond movie. Yeah, Pretty yeah, much yeah, everybody yeah. else did. Everybody was on it. Everybody was on it. Yeah. Well, pl- well played, Len. See you at the next one. See you at the next one. We might be doing another London-based spy book. Are we going to do three spy ones? Three London spies. Okay. See if you can guess who the next one is. Do you want to sing us out? Enjoy the curiously specific book club. Brought to you by Palmer's Soho Blend. The coffee of the swinging sixties. Enjoy coffee. Enjoy coffee. I'm hoping you'll mix in the soundtrack at that point.